0: I didn't know that I was gonna go public, but there it is. Um, also, um, thank you everyone for being so patient with my, my family, particularly my son. I'm, that, I'm sure that might have been like the quickest person to step off the stage of their church. We mean no offense. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a great honor to be here today. Uh, since this is our first time getting acquainted, I thought it would be appropriate to maybe start with an introduction of our church. Um, our church story actually began in November of 2019, uh, when we first gathered with 13 people in our living room to pray about planning a new church to reach the growing population of secular agnostic liberals right outside of the nation's capital. Um, we thought uh, we would launch in September of uh, 2020, but that got pushed back by a whole year because of something called COVID. And so... Uh, at the time, I was uh, the youngest Korean American church plan in the PCA, so it goes without saying that the encouragement, prayers, and wisdom that I've received from Elder Alex and Pastor Will um, have been so, so invaluable to us, to me, and my family. Um, I already had no idea what I was doing, and then the pandemic made that that much worse. So all these older brothers who came into my life and just really shepherded me and my family through the process, uh, really, really, um, I, I want to... Credit them for helping us to get through that season. Uh, there were many days where uh, we thought we wouldn't make it um, because, again, COVID just messed up all of our plans. We prayed and, and desperately asked God to make it clear if maybe he didn't want us to do this. Maybe he wanted us to shut it down, and maybe that's what he had in store for us. And I was open to it, um, but we certainly wanted to pray about it because we weren't sure what was going on anymore. And if he wanted us to persevere through this, we asked as a church, or as a uh, core team anyway, to um, save people through our efforts. And God was good to us. Uh, he used our community during the worst moments of the pandemic to lead many prodigal children back home. Uh, the gospel became very sweet uh, to uh, many de people and the hearts of several unchurched people as well started to light on fire for Christ. And all we could do was observe in awe. By the time we launched this past September, nearly two years since we started gathering people, we had baptized um, three unchurched young adults and had nearly uh, about 30 people on our launch team. And by the first week of this, pa- of this current month, we had baptized a total of five unchurched adults since launching and are now averaging about 100 people on Sundays with about 60 people in our membership. So we actually just started looking for an assistant pastor to help with the shepherding needs of our church because I can no longer do it on my own. Uh, and to say that church planting during the pandemic was difficult would be an understatement. I would not wish this upon my worst enemies. I I'd ne- I'd never want to do that again. Um, But to see secular agnostic liberals, the largest demographic of non-Christians in in the West, come to faith in the midst of all the social upheavals that we've been experiencing as a nation in recent years, uh, has made the journey worth the tears and the heartache. And I pray that it's an encouragement to all of you in your evangelistic endeavors in your communities, that the God that we worship can do such miracles. And in that spirit of evangelism, I have the great privilege of preaching from Jonah 4 today. And so today's main point is, uh, God exposes our idols of self-righteousness to lead us to repentance so that we grow in our missional posture toward the unbelieving world. Again, God exposes our idols of self-righteousness to lead us to repentance so that we grow in our missional posture toward, uh, towards the unbelieving world. I have three points for today's sermon. The first is the problem of, of idolatry. The second, the compassion of God. And the third, the mercy of God. And so starting from uh, point number one, the problem of idolatry, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, if you recall from Pastor Will's sermon uh, last week, Jonah preached a message of faith and repentance to the residents of Nineveh, Nineveh and the which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And these Gentiles repented and God spared them from destruction. And in verse one of this chapter, we learn that God saving the Assyrians from disaster made Jonah exceedingly displeased and angry. But the word angry here isn't the kind of anger you have when um, someone double parks at Costco. This is more like road rage. So Jonah, here, is burning with rage. But why was he so angry? We have to remember that the Assyrian Empire was arguably the most cruel and violent civilization to have existed by this point of history. Many scholars have have, uh, called the Assyrian Empire the first terrorist state. What does that even mean, right? Um, The closest modern equivalent would be ISIS. But even ISIS would seem moderate compared to the Assyrians. The Assyrian kings often bragged about whole fields littered with corpses and cities burned completely to the ground. They would often cut off the legs and one arm of their captured enemies, leaving only one arm and hand, so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced surviving friends and family to parade around with, with uh, just very uh, their their loved ones mutilated, they burned alive young people so that they wouldn't uh, rebel against them when they grew older, and the survivors were enslaved. On top of all of that, they are actually credited with inventing the crucifixion as a form of execution in the ancient world. It wasn't the Romans. They They got the idea from someone else. And so this is just a glimpse of what the northern kingdom of Israel had suffered in their skirmishes with the Assyrians before they were completely conquered. So yeah, when God told Jonah to preach and offer the residents of Nineveh, the capital city of this empire, a chance to repent so that God would withhold his judgment from them, some of the original readers of Jonah might have actually felt some sympathy for Jonah's hesitancy. Jonah preferred that God just judge Nineveh for all of their wicked deeds and wipe them out so that they would no longer be a threat to Israel. And when God didn't, he was furious, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said in verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country of the northern kingdom of Israel? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster therefore now o lord please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live and the lord said do you do well to be angry or is it right for you to be angry now obviously the answer is no jonah shouldn't be angry but god's question about whether jonah's anger is righteous makes us wonder Does Jonah believe his anger is righteous? What is God trying to point out in Jonah's heart here? We get the sense that Jonah believed his anger at the whole situation was righteous and justified. He still couldn't let go of the fact that the Assyrians had a chance to repent and God had granted it. It's a reality that he has such a difficult time accepting that he even asked God in verse 3 to just kill him. And when Jonah says he wants to die, he's admitting that, some, that something he cherished more than God was taken away, and now he has no desire to live. He lost his purpose in life after God had shown the Assyrians mercy. And even as he's upset with God for showing mercy to the Assyrians for their idolatry and cruelty, he himself is unwittingly confessing that he too has idols in his heart, that he loves more than God. And now that the idol was taken away, Jonah says, I would rather die. So what did Jonah lose when God showed the Assyrians mercy? The only other place that Jonah is ever mentioned in the Old Testament is in the book of 2 Kings, where we learn that he was the advisor to King Jeroboam II. And he went against his fellow prophets, Amos and Hosea, who criticized Jeroboam II. And Jonah instead supported this king's expansionist policy to grow Israel into a regional superpower, which meant conquering major portions of Western Assyria. It meant killing, enslaving, or exiling many innocent Gentiles from these lands. Jonah supported this. He told the king this was God's will. And this is where Tim Keller actually comments the original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as, quote, intensely patriotic and a highly partisan nationalist. But now that God had shown the Assyrians' mercy, Israel could, uh, could never defeat them in battle and would have to stay put as a small kingdom, constantly at the mercy of their bigger, stronger Assyrian neighbors to the northwest. In other words, Jonah loved his country so much that he was willing to see other nations punished, exploited, or, or oppressed so that his own country could grow in greatness. That is, friends, by definition, nationalism. And as Pastor Will reminded us last week, Jonah is a nationalist. And from this passage, we learn that nationalism is idolatry. So much so that when Jonah lost this, he wanted to die. So friends, I want to ask us these questions. What do we love in the world so much that it would be difficult to live without it? apart from Jesus Christ. Better yet, what cruelty are we willing to overlook or justify in order to improve our lives at the cost of the lives of our neighbors, both in our local communities and overseas? Are we, in that sense, like Jonah, feeling that our anger is justified when a group of people that we don't particularly like flourishes politically, wins in court, or gets money from the government or moves into our neighborhoods? Who do we need to dehumanize in order to justify our anger against those we disagree with? These are the questions that may reveal the idols of our hearts that we love and cherish more than Jesus. In the end, the problem. Isn't our love for our country or our concern about systemic injustices? The problem is that we have a tendency to make anything good into idols. Second point, the compassion of God. Starting from verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and made it come over Jonah so that it might provide some shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now it's ironic here because God, Jonah had experienced the wrath of God in chapter one and nearly died because of it. He only survived because of God's mercy. And some commentators uh, believe that him, uh, the moment that he was swallowed by the fish and then Uh, his recognition of his rebellion and sins and repentance and all that, some uh, scholars believe that's the moment where he might have actually gotten saved. And yet, he too deserved God's judgment just as the Assyrians did, but Jonah received mercy instead. But he forgot all of this. He forgot all of this terrible, traumatic experience of being swallowed by a fish as his self-righteousness took hold of his heart and his old nationalist sins creeped in. Yet despite Jonah's return to his old sin, notice how God is actually patient with him. Jonah seems like the same person he was before he was swallowed by the fish. But this time, instead of sending another storm into Jonah's life, God begins to counsel him gently, even providing some shade for him. And this is a great example of what repentance looks like in the Christian life after we come to faith, is it not? Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. The Apostle Paul talks about a constant war that he's facing in his heart between his old self and his new self. Conversion doesn't mean our sins prior to conversion just disappear, uh, which, but in some cases they do, but not all of it. Nor does it mean that God will reject us for struggling with the same sins that we struggled with before becoming Christians. In Jonah's life, whereas God first sent a storm that threatened his life for his, for his rebellion, God now gently counsels Jonah for his self-righteousness after his initial repentance from nationalism. Where God acts more like a judge as a result of his initial refusal to go to Nineveh, God now acts more like a loving father as a result of Jonah's sins after his conversion. God is incredibly compassionate with Jonah, a recovering ethno-religious nationalist. And this, my friends, should challenge the way we ought to love our recovering nationalist neighbors as well. How we respond to the rhetoric and actions of recovering nationalists in our faith community reveals the depth to which we understand how patient and compassionate God has been with us and the sins that we continue to struggle with since our profession of faith in Christ. God exposes our idols of self-righteousness to lead us to repentance so that we grow in our missional posture towards the unbelieving world. Friends, no one side is better. Second po- uh, third point, the mercy of God. Starting from verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was uh, faint. And he he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah is like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He is offended when God shows mercy to sinners. We don't know for how long, but he decides to wait and see, to see if the Ninevites would do something wrong again, so that this time, maybe God won't have mercy on them. He's not a nice guy. And as he waits, God makes a plant provide shade for him with its broad leaves. And it says, Jonah is exceedingly glad by the shade. This, this is the same word that, um, that is used to describe when the Israelites rejoiced after David killed Goliath. It's a very strong word for being happy. And so why, why this word? Probably because he's so discouraged that this small luxury has a, a profound impact on him. Uh, than it normally would. I mean, a normal shave wouldn't, you know, when you're hot, it's like, oh, that's nice. Or like, oh, that's very useful. But here, it, it's, it, like, it made him rejoice because he was so miserable. Finally, something is going right in my life. But God removes the plant and sends this wind over, and, and it's just scorching hot again. And Jonah essentially responds Nothing is going my way. I'm so mad that I can die. God, just kill me now but this is a setup for um, God's final lesson in verse 10 through 11. And the Lord says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in, in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Yeah, I don't know what the cattle part means, but the people are important here. The word pity occurs twice here. The Hebrew word for pity means, also means compassion or to grieve. And so, grieve, I think, is a more helpful translation. God says to Jonah, You have compassion for the plant, you weep over the death of plants, but I have compassion toward actual people, regardless of their race or religion or their political affiliation. For God to attach himself in love to someone other than himself is radical because the gods of the ancient world didn't do this. They weren't so personal. They didn't weep over humanity's suffering. God is essentially saying here, I grieve over how lost and how broken Nineveh is. I have compassion for them because I have set my heart to loving them. Their pain is now, is now my pain. Their suffering is now my suffering. This doesn't mean that God uh, needs human beings to uh, be fulfilled or, or to be complete. I remember going to a missions conference was in college where the, the speaker told us that God is sitting on his throne, crying and weeping and begging his children to do something about the lost souls of this world. That is not the God of Scripture. This is not what's happening here. He's still the all powerful, perfectly content God who is content in himself. The only explanation then is that this all powerful and self sufficient God voluntarily chooses to love someone other than himself simply because he wants to, simply because he's good. God sees people who are spiritually blind and hurting themselves and others and has mercy. God is saying, my heart breaks for these people. I grieve over them. As one of my prophets, can you have compassion over them? As one of my children, can you have mercy on them too? In many ways, we're not unlike Jonah when we respond with joy or satisfaction to the suffering of the people that we disagree with politically, ideologically, or even theologically. More than ever before in our nation's history, Christians must wrestle with the issues that divide our churches, families, and communities with compassion and mercy, with weeping over the suffering, weeping over our neighbors who don't know why they're hurting and why they're hurting others. Rather than responding to the downfall of or political defeat of our supposed enemies with celebration like Jonah would, we need to start looking at the true and better Jonah in order to recapture the church's role as a healer, not a divider in our communities. Whereas Jonah looked forward to this destruction of the city before him, the true and better Jonah, Jesus, wept over the city before him. Whereas Jonah looked forward to declaring those jerks got what they deserve, Jesus wept over Jerusalem's brokenness and rebellion. Whereas Jonah exclusively loved himself and his ethno-religious nation, Jesus voluntarily came down to earth to love people of all nations. Whereas Jonah's life goal was to provide life, And prosperity for his fellow countrymen, Jesus' mission was to provide eternal life for all people regardless of their race or politics. Whereas Jonah meant to amplify ethno-religious divisions by putting his own people first, Jesus came to create a new humanity by breaking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Whereas Jonah ran away from God and had to nearly die by being swallowed up by a fish for three days in order to finally offer the good news to people he hated. Jesus willingly obeyed the Father and died and was raised three days later to offer the good news of salvation to people that hated him. And whereas Jonah was self-righteously horrified by the Assyrians' cruel imagination of executing criminals on a cross, Jesus voluntarily died on, the, on a cross of, a, of an Assyrian invention as a falsely accused criminal to forgive self-righteous people like all of us. Friends, let's look to Jesus, whom jo- Jonah ultimately foreshadows, to see how we too can become healers, not dividers in our communities. Just as God had mercy on Jonah by taking away his shade in order to expose his self-righteousness once more and to lead him to repentance, I pray that our Father may have mercy on all of us in the coming weeks to expose our idols of self-righteousness and lead us to repentance so that we grow in our missional posture towards the unbelieving world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, with various different beliefs and biases and all the different ways that our culture has shaped us with different preferences for who ought to to rule on our behalf, to to serve in our communities, Lord. Issues that have sadly divided us, our churches, our, our denomination, our communities, our nation. God, we are more like Jonah than we can ever comprehend or imagine. And yet, like Jonah, as your children, you have compassion and mercy over us because we are still recovering. We are still in the process of sanctification. Lord God, won't you expose in our hearts the different ways self-righteousness has manifested that has prevented us from being healers in our communities, peacemakers, peacemakers, as a sign outside says, won't you raise up in this church an army of peacemakers, people who love Jesus and people who weep over the lost regardless of their race, religion, or politics. Won't you be a God who saves people regardless of their backgrounds and brings them into this wonderful uh, family so that more people can come to know your son as being most precious to their soul. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.